Attention everyone, this is an emergency broadcast. The unpleasant noise you are about to hear coming from your radio is not a mistake. Please do not turn off your radio, but turn up the volume on your receiver as high as it can go, so that you can make the sound we broadcast as loud as possible. The monsters will now start attacking Tokyo. Turn up the sound so you can hear the monsters dueling to the death. Konnichiwa, and welcome to the Kaiju Cast, a bi-monthly podcast 100% dedicated to Godzilla and all of his rubber-suited foes. My name is Kyle, and this is episode 107, and the first episode of April 2014. In this episode, we'll be speaking with author and film historian Stuart Galbraith IV, about his love for Godzilla and the books that he has written, Japanese science fiction, fantasy, and horror films, and also Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo, two books that no Godzilla collection should be without, in my opinion. And uh, this interview was recorded back in September of last year, before I went to Japan, so there might be some outdated information, but it's time to get this into your ear holes now. We also have news to cover, lots of news, of course, and a contest to announce, so make sure you stay tuned to find out how you can win. As always, we kick things off with some requests, starting with Global Defense Force Mecha King Ghidra from Godzilla Unleashed for David, and that is because David requested the Kaiju Cast theme song. So I think it's too soon to play the original Kaiju Cast theme song, so this is for you, Dave.
song we just finished that block off with is the Ultraman Gaia theme song by Toshihiko Sahashi and that is of course from Ultraman Gaia that was a request from Ben and uh, as I said earlier the Mecha King Ghidra theme from Godzilla Unleashed was for David now am I the only one who sat there and like imagined the voices and the monsters saying things like you may wish to deny it but your eyes tell you it's true you know, after hearing it hundreds and hundreds of times myself. 
Uh, I just couldn't help it. Anyway, we're going to go ahead and move on to our interview with Stuart Galbraith. Now, if you don't know who Stuart Galbraith is, like I said earlier, he wrote two books. Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo, The Incredible World of Japanese Fantasy Film is a fantastic book. And we talk about it a lot in this interview. Um, I don't know how readily available it is, but what I would suggest doing if you're interested in checking it out is maybe seeing if your local library has it because it was published uh, way back in 1998. So you should check it out. The way that Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo is organized seems like it would have been a real nightmare to do, but Stuart seems to think otherwise. Joining me from Kyoto, Japan, from the uh, the internet, or through the internet, I should say, is Stuart Galbraith IV. Stuart, welcome to the Kaiju Cast. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm tickled. Uh, now, for the, the, the listeners who may not know who you are, can you give a little bit of a description as to how I may have found you? <laughs> Which I'll go into later, of course, too, but... Uh, well, I do. Uh, I, I've written some books on on the the genre, and uh, I've, I also do uh, occasionally uh, DVD uh, slash Blu-ray audio commentaries, or contribute to uh, uh, DVD and Blu-ray booklets and that kind of thing. I guess I should just ask you right off the bat: How did you get into film studies? Um, well, I've always loved movies. I mean, uh, since I was uh, a child, really, and. Uh, um, you know, I grew up in uh, suburban Detroit, and uh, just from as long as I can remember, was always interested in um, movies of of all types. Uh, watching them on on TV, and then uh, as I got older, I used to uh, drive over to Ann Arbor, which is a, a big uh, university town, University of Michigan. And back in those days, long before uh, home video and cable television. Uh, on any given weekend, uh, they would be screening uh, movies all over town. You would usually have a choice between, I don't know, maybe uh, 10 or 15 different movies to choose from. You could go, go to a double feature of, say, Casablanca and play it against Sam at one place, and another place might be showing King Kong and Mighty Joe Young and uh, stuff like that. So I just... Um, you know, sort of ravenously consumed everything I could see, and uh, and monster movies were a big part of that. Uh, as I, I talk about in one of my books, uh, uh, in in Detroit they uh, had a show called the Four O'clock Movie on WXYZ TV Channel Seven, which was the ABC affiliate, and uh, they uh, bought this particular station, bought a lot of the AIP TV packages of. Um, monster stuff so they would frequently have a Godzilla week or a Gamera week or a monsters from Japan week and uh, sometimes show the the real oddball thing like Majin the hideous idol or the last war or the extra outer space or something like that and i became totally enamored of those movies and really wanted to learn as much as i could about how they were made and who who made them and and uh, where they kind of fit into the scheme of things in, in Japanese cinema. And I just wanted to, to learn as much as I could about, about those pictures. And I would imagine when you were watching those on TV that there was just not a lot of information out. No, there was practically nothing. I mean, later on I discovered uh, the Greg Shoemaker's uh, Japanese Fantasy Film Journal and Japanese Giants. Uh, but even those things were real. You, you couldn't 
just go to a newsstand and and count on those things showing up. They would just suddenly appear somewhere, and you and you you just hoped you had enough money, enough pocket change to to buy them when you saw them, because chances were good you'd never see them ever again. And I think uh, for me, and I think this is probably true with a lot of uh, monster fans of of my generation, uh, there was a issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland, issue number 114, which was the, their all-Japan all issue. And uh, when I saw that, I was just, you know, in heaven because it was crammed with photographs of Japanese uh, fantasy films I had never heard of, pictures I had never seen. And in particular, there, there was um, a reproduction of some sort of illustration, Japanese illustration. I don't think I've ever seen it anywhere else, so I don't know where Forey Ackerman got it, but um, of one of presumably Eiji Tsuburaya's miniature sets and little you know, diagram of what all the, the, the workers did and operating the remote-controlled tanks and other guys building the, the miniature sets and so forth. And I just spent hours and hours gazing at this thing oh, yeah. and dreaming That's... about how I would love to someday, you know, visit the set of one of those movies. Yeah, though, like, that's the one that's, like, the one diagram of the of how they make an entire Toho film, right? <laughs> right, right. It was all in, all in one, yeah. Oh, right on. Yeah, that's a great, great issue. Unfortunately, I didn't have that one as a kid, but I, I picked it up recently, and it's, it's actually right here in my collection. Wonderful. It, when you started going past famous monsters, when you started really seeking out this information, you're saying it was uh, it was stuff like the Fantasy Film Journal and Japanese Giants. Um, I've had uh, the astute pleasure of speaking with both Steve Rifle and Ed Gojicheski this year, and uh, you guys all seem to have sort of the same sort of uh, almost like a background in a sense of watching the movies on TV or or in theaters, and then. You know, just yeah. I mean, Ed's, Ed's a little older, more. so he he was lucky enough to see a a lot of those movies in theaters when they were new. Right. Uh, by the time you know, I was old enough to to go to the movies. Uh, the the genre was pretty much uh, petering out. I you know I remember things like uh, Godzilla on Monster Island uh, playing you know a, a matinee and some horrible <laughs> flea bag theater in right, downtown right. Detroit for like one day and you know begging my father please please take me you know and he's like I'm not going to take you to see that junk yeah so uh so yeah most of that stuff for me I I saw on on TV the first time I know in Steve's case he got his mother to take him to see Godzilla I think it was Godzilla versus the Smog Monster he had a very very accommodating mother fortunately <laughs> it's good to have when you're a youngster and you don't don't have the uh, ability to move yourself to the theater very easily yes uh well so when you uh when you moved past these these uh journals when did you find yourself writing about the films well i had uh, started writing uh professionally i guess around 1989 uh writing um, movie reviews and and uh i guess this was the early days of well, this would have been VHS, I guess. Uh, VHS reviews for a newspaper and uh, doing other things, and um, and I just I really loved the genre and I wanted to write about it. And there at that point, again, this was before I think this was maybe before G Fan and some of these other fanzines started up, and Markalite, or maybe Markalite had started. I don't remember exactly. Yeah, I think 89 but, was their first issue. 
Yeah. So around that time, I started thinking, gee, you know, if nobody's going, nobody else is going to do a book, I would really like to to do a book. And and uh, as much for me to learn more about these movies and to try to see a lot of the films that had eluded me uh, all those years. So, um, but again, I, I I wish that <laughs> I wish there had been an internet at that point, uh, so I could have uh, done research and and uh, gone to Japan. All that stuff came later. So I was pretty much working off of um, the, uh, well, really bootlegs of, of uh, the movies, either bootlegs of things that had aired on American television or bootlegs of uh, Japanese uh, VHS uh, commercial releases and, and Laserdiscs. And also around that time, there was a network of uh, fans who were starting to connect to one another uh, again, it was the earliest days of the internet. I remember at the time I had a daisy wheel printer, for instance. So when I, when I printed out the manuscript of that first book, it, it ended up taking like 24 hours to print it. Out, so. <laughs> and so was this book, uh, the Japanese science fiction fantasy and horror films book, was that your first, yes. first book? Yes. Or just first book on the genre? That was my first, I think that was my first book ever, yeah. But you've continued to write on uh, on on film you you're definitely uh, I think you, the link that I found for just when I searched for your name was your DVD talk uh, page on, oh right uh, right yeah yeah so I mean obviously you are a film buff what uh, what drew you specifically to the rest of the Japanese films if it was it just sort of like I want to see where these films sit within the the Japanese cinema, and then you started enjoying those. Yeah, it was. As well? I mean, I think it was a little. You know, you mentioned uh, Steve and Ed, and I think all of us have slightly different areas of interest. You know, and I mean, there are some people out there who are interested primarily in the films in, in, in terms of their special effects. Some people are hardcore Akira Ifukube fans and are interested in exploring the the. The, the scoring of the films. I think for me, uh, my interests were more about trying to figure out uh, how to put these films into context. I, I was really sort of, you know, 1950s and 60s uh, American science fiction cinema was basically a, a B-movie genre for the most part. I mean, you have exceptions like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Forbidden Planet, but I mean, mostly it's you're talking about Roger Corman and Allied Artist and Astor films, and and it was kind of a lowly genre for for the most part. And whereas these Japanese movies um, were obviously done on a much bigger scale, and and I began to recognize uh, actors like Takashi Shimura, for example, as being, hey, this is the same guy from Seven Samurai and Ikiru, and you know. What must it have been like for somebody like that to uh, alternate between these very prestigious, um, top-of-the-line Japanese films and then to do something like, you know, Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster? How did they feel about that? Um, uh, how, how did were – these, were these movies that were embraced by mainstream audiences or were they movies that were basically just for kids those were the kinds of things i was really interested in exploring and finding out like how long would you say it was before you actually made contact with the first people you talked to from japan well the first time i went to japan was in uh december of 1994 
And a guy named David Milner helped me get in touch with people for the first time and was really just, you know, enormously helpful to me to get me started. And, uh, and so that was in 94. And then I guess I went back in 96 and 99 and, and then was really uh, doing the bulk of that research, uh, going from place to place, you know, go, traveling to, to Tokyo and then just cramming in as many interviews as I could manage. Um, I think one day I inter- interviewed uh, maybe five people. So I would just uh, schedule these trips and, and hope people would be willing to, to see me and meet with me and talk about their, their lives and their careers. And I was extremely lucky because almost everybody was incredibly nice and uh, incredibly you know, giving of their time and willing to talk about these movies. So, um, you know, it's really thanks, thanks to them that I was able to, to meet with so many wonderful people. Were you just going to Japan strictly for the interviews, or were you? Did you happen to be there for work or something? No, no, I was going there basically just to do research. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and I didn't have time for anything else. I, I basically did no sightseeing or anything. Uh, it was it was a full schedule every day I was here. Yeah, I went in 2011, and I had one day because I was there for work, so I had one day by myself, and I, I did my best to try and schedule. Uh, some meetings and interviews and also some small sightseeing. And I totally overpacked my schedule and uh, there's embarrassing stories after that. But uh, yeah, I, I, I was able to actually get a few interviews and it was, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. And it's very time consuming because, you know, back then I didn't speak Japanese at all. So I was working with an interpreter and so, you know, to do uh, an hour interview with all the back and forth and everything, it basically would take three hours. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that is exactly what I would expect. Yes. Yeah. So, when did you start uh, actually learning? Well, you know, I, I sort of learn in a very backward sort of way, which is that um, in doing my research on uh, the genre and Japanese cinema generally, uh, I began to acquire a lot of Japanese. Uh, cinema reference books, and uh, which were obviously entirely in Japanese, and I couldn't read them. So I had to kind of teach myself how to read. Uh, for example, if I wanted to get information about, say, the director Jun Fukuda, I had to sort of learn how to read his name. In the, his name is uh, three kanji characters. So I began to slowly recognize. Um, actors' names and directors' names. And then from there, I could uh, say, oh, okay, this person was born in 1921. Okay, this this city. Hmm, how do I read this city where they were born? <laughs> and go and, and do more research and then say, oh, okay, this is, this is Hiroshima or whatever it was. So I really learned Japanese backwards because I learned how to read, uh, in some cases, some very difficult-to-read Japanese names before I could learn to say, you know, the dog ran up the hill. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. And my, my Japanese is still really, you know, even though I've lived here now almost 11 years or something, um, it's still really terrible. I think I'm, I, I just don't have the, the knack for languages that a lot of people do. So I'm able to function, but I, I speak very pidgin Japanese. Right. Right. So even now. Yeah, one of my friends uh, who lives in Tokyo, she uh, actually helped me out when I was interviewing Kaneko. 
and she's like fully like admitted before we uh, even met up. She's like, I speak a very uh, slang version of Japanese, where she can mm. go, she can go to a bar and hang out with the people in the bar and not have any problems. But when it comes to vocabulary outside of that, she has to have like a little translator with her. Yeah, no, I understand that completely because there's. You know, there's there's kind of polite Japanese, which is a little bit different from regular conversational Japanese, and it's um, it, it's it's like a different language. You know, the way newscasters speak uh, is is different from the way you know people speak in conversation. So it's very very confusing. If I watch, uh, for example, a, a Japanese movie that has a contemporary setting, I can usually watch it and get through it okay. But if it's a, a period film, a samurai film, let's say, uh, I really can't understand what's going on because the language is just, it's so formal and there's, there's so much jargon and terminology that I just don't have a clue what they're saying. It's the same thing if I'm watching, a, say, a World War II, II movie. Mm-hmm. You know, the titles and everything are just far beyond my ability. Yeah, I had no idea that the, that the type of vocabulary people were using in the films would have such a diverse in a sense and a, like a diverse meaning so yeah well and there's also you know there's regional dialects and everything else i mean my daughter speaks fluent japanese but she speaks kyoto ben which is the you know kyoto dialect so uh she would be perfectly understood if she went to tokyo but she would use certain words and phrases and things that aren't used by tokyoites right and uh my wife for instance is from uh really fairly remote southern island of Japan called the Mamioshima. And um, so she's able to alternate between Amami-ben and Kyoto-ben and and, uh, and Tokyo-ben. But um, her grandmother, for instance, if she came to Tokyo, she probably would have a hard time being understood. Interesting. Well, I guess that's not really that much different than being in the United States and getting someone who... Uh like comes from the south and right right you know, having a very extreme way of uh of speaking mm. so have you uh have you glommed onto any other specific genres that you really enjoy aside from the giant monster genres in japan or is that uh, in, in terms of japanese movies or yeah movies just in terms, of, in terms of japanese films uh yeah i mean i like um pretty much all Japanese film genres. I mean, I love drama and comedy. I'm, I'm, I really fell in love with uh, Japanese salaryman comedies of the 1950s and 60s, for example. Uh, when I first started coming to Japan, it was the, the age of Laserdisc. So I would prowl uh, Laserdisc shops in Shinjuku and uh, you know, they were <laughs> outrageously expensive. So I was lucky if I could get one or two, but as I'm flipping through the, the titles, I would see all these fascinating, tantalizing salaryman comedies like Las Vegas free for all and the age of irresponsibility in Japan and, and, uh, Monsieur Jivako and, and all these movies that had a lot of the same, uh, cast members and, and directors and crews. Um, from the science fiction films. And, and, and in fact, Eiji Tsuburaya did special effects on a number of these films. And uh, so eventually I thought, well, gee, I, I think I'll give this a try. And I just, I, I totally fell in love with um, 
uh, Toho's Crazy Cats films and the the Shacho film series with uh, Hisa Morishige and and so on. And um, so I love those, and I, I think it's even not even so much by genre as by by age. I I really love watching Japanese movies uh, from the early post-war period, from you know roughly the late 1940s to the early 70s. That whole period of Japanese cinema really fascinates me, and and uh, I'll watch just about anything, you know, whether it's the Chambara film or Jiragaki or straight drama or whatever. My uh, knowledge of Japanese films is minuscule because we just don't get that much here in America. In fact, I would say that before the internet boom, it was just almost impossible to get anything but Kurosawa's films and uh, and kaiju films, really. I mean, every once right, in a while right. you'd see some samurai stuff, but I have seen very little in the way of Japanese cinema. I'd love to, to check out a Crazy Cats uh, movie at some point because the there there was a website at one point i don't i'm not sure if it's still around but it was some almost like the japanese movie poster database or something along those lines and as i was uh skimming through those to at first of course just to see all the different kaiju posters uh there would be some that i'd I'd definitely say hey i recognize that guy from godzilla versus the sea monster right right uh yeah they're just very interesting they look very happy are they are they really funny (laughs) Are they, they are. They're very happy. Definitely comedy films. Yeah, I mean, you know, the comedy films are great because, uh, I, you know, f- for example, uh, one that's that's very accessible is this thing called Las Vegas Free for All, which is basically has the crazy cats going to first to Honolulu and then Los Angeles and finally Las Vegas, and they have a lot of funny funny interaction with English speaking characters, and then, of course, they, you know, they they don't really speak English, and and the people they encounter don't speak Japanese, and Eventually, they're like singing and dancing all down, you know, downtown Las Vegas. <laughs> it's it's wonderful. It's it's an amazing movie. Very cool. So, if you had to suggest people seek out something outside of the kaiju or or samurai, or actually, you know what? Don't even ignore the samurai. Like outside of the kaiju genre for Japanese cinema, like what are some of the titles that you suggest people seek out? Well, the obvious stuff, I suppose, is is still Kurosawa because Kurosawa is still so accessible, and I, I think movies, not just Yojimbo and and Seven Samurai and the this the samurai pictures, but particularly things like High and Low and uh, The Bad Sleep Well and Red Beard, those are all really great movies. And um, and then um, uh, a couple of years ago, I was really lucky to work on the first U.S. release of the Torreson films, uh, which began in 1969 and, and ended only with the, the death of the star in the mid-1990s. Um, but a DVD label released the first four Torreson movies in America. So those are available region one with English subtitles. And those movies are just wonderful. And they, they um, capture, I think, the, what it was really like for an ordinary family growing up uh, you know, during the, that time, the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. And, and the films are really funny and enjoyable and... Um, it's it's just unfortunate that they were only able to release the first four because hmm. they ended up doing 40, 48 movies. That is a collection. Wow. Yeah. So when did you start? Uh, so your first book was the Japanese science fiction, fantasy, and horror films book, but then 
did you write anything else in between that and Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo? Um, yeah, I did a book on, you know, I mentioned before that I'm from uh, suburban Detroit. So I did a book uh, on the history of movie theaters in Detroit from the, the big movie palaces downtown to the drive-in theaters. And um, obviously it's kind of, you know, it has that sort of regional interest, but I also did it as a kind of case study to show the, the evolution of one city's uh, movie theater going habits. And, um, and I, it, it was a great project to work on because I got to uh, kind of sneak into all these abandoned theaters right. <laughs> in the middle of nowhere and, and um, uh, look at all these great decaying movie palaces uh, that were just, you know, amazing places during the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and then became run down and eventually closed. And uh, so I did that and then I did a book uh, called The Japanese Filmography, which was just kind of a general reference book on Japanese cinema. And I think I think those were the two that I did between that and, and Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo. Now, Monsters Are Attacking Tokyo, this is more of a statement for the listeners that are out there. I, I picked up this book several years ago, but not definitely not when it was first released. And I was actually really surprised at, without a better way to say it, the way it was written. It, was, it wasn't like, uh, like Steve's book is a chronological telling of each individual film, and you get... Uh, you know, you get your your story about what the film is showing you, and then you get the behind-the-scenes stuff, and he sort of tells you about what happened in Japan and what happened in America, which is all great. But then when I opened up your book, it's uh, you. It's almost as if you interviewed all of these people and uh, asked... I'm not saying this is how you did it, but it's almost as if you interviewed all these people and asked them all the same questions, and then you sort of like recategorize the interviews there's a section talking about A.G. Tsuburaya's uh, influence and and uh, Ishiro Honda and and what you know how it was working with him and you just get it's almost as if you had everybody in the same room yeah well that was that was kind of what I was trying to the impression I was trying to create the, the book was very heavily influenced by a book from the same publisher called Nightmare of Ecstasy, which was uh, an oral history of about the life of Ed Wood, the director of Plan 9 from Outer Space. And uh, that, that book I absolutely loved. I thought it was just fascinating and, and hysterically funny at times and sad and depressing <laughs> at other yeah. times. And, and, of course, the book eventually, with only very slight changes, essentially became the Tim Burton Ed Wood movie. Pretty much all of the, the the anecdotes in Nightmare of Ecstasy were were dramatized in the Tim Burton mm-hmm. uh, movie, and um, but long before the movie was made, I, I had read the book and I loved the book, and I thought, gee, you know, wouldn't it be great to to have a book like that, an oral history of the genre, told by all the people that were there, the the actors and directors and so forth. So basically, you know, I, I more or less stole the format of uh, Nightmare of Ecstasy and, um, and uh, the publisher, Feral House, and uh, the, the publisher, uh, Adam Parfrey, were, thought that was a good idea, and, and then off I went. Dude, how long did it take you to actually sit down and record all of these? Was this, this was over the years that you were obviously going to Japan, I think most of the interviews were basically all done 
over maybe like a three week or four week research trip, something like that. You know, uh, Ishiro Honda sadly had died before I was able to do that book. So Honda's comments actually come from another source. They came from an interview that was conducted by a journalist named James Bailey, who interviewed Honda in the, I, I think it was the early 1990s. Uh, but most most of the interviews were done in in one trip, wow. or or they were done by telephone after I came back. People that I wasn't able to see when I was there. Wow, that's still pretty amazing. All in one trip, pretty much. That's that's really. Uh, I'm impressed. Yeah. <laughs> I need to step up my game. Uh, not for this trip, but maybe my next visit to Japan. <laughs> Out of all the films you've covered from Japan, uh, the, the Japanese kaiju films the kaiju iga what is uh your favorite mm, that's a really tough question i you know I, I probably what i what i should say is the original godzilla but um no i don't say that that's like the go-to like that's what people yeah 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 to. so i i think the one that i really really love that unfortunately is almost impossible to see these days is gorath mm-hmm. um I don't know if I still have it. I used to have a Japanese laser disc of it. Maybe I have a I don't know. I don't know if it's even out on I must have a DVD of it, I think now. But uh when you can see the film in its original form, uh because it was heavily altered uh for release in the US by this company called Brenko Films. But if you can see the original Japanese version, uh you can really appreciate this thing was done on a really massive scale. It was you know, in the early 60s was the time of Mothra and the Last War and the, the, the big uh, Chushingura uh, that, they, that Toho did for their 30th anniversary. And so they were doing all these big-scale films around that time. And Gorath is maybe the I, – I don't know this for sure, but it, it might very well have been the, the biggest budget that Tsuburaya and Honda uh, were ever given to work with. And the scale of the film is really big, and it's it's really uh, a smart film and intelligent, and it's it's you know basically it's it's kind of a Japanese when worlds collide, and um, and uh, to see it in in the original Japanese version, and it was re- released in in full stereo, so it sounds great, it looks great. Uh, I just really love that film, and uh, uh, the rights. Uh, issues uh, in America are really tangled, so there's probably little to no chance that it's going to be released anytime in the foreseeable future, which which is a shame. And I don't think it's as highly regarded in Japan as perhaps it should be. So I, I wouldn't count on a, any uh, big restoration or Blu-ray release right, anytime right. soon either. I, I don't think it's out on Blu-ray, though. I'm not sure. How did you get involved with uh, with Steve and Ed and, and recording the commentaries for the for the classic media DVDs? Um, boy, I don't really remember exactly. I mean, I've known Steve for many years. Uh, I I lived in Los Angeles for ten years, beginning in nineteen ninety three, I guess, and um, uh, Steve and I met and became good friends and. Um, and of course, Ed is based in Chicago, so I didn't, I, I don't see Ed as as often. But he would fly out to Los Angeles, and he now uh, obviously makes regular trips to Japan, and we try to see one another when he he comes this way. Um, 
But uh, Steve and, and Ed were really the people behind those classic media releases, and they were just uh, you know very generously uh, dividing the work among uh, a group of us. And uh, I was lucky enough to work on uh, Monster Zero slash Invasion of Astro Monster. Yeah, see, that's my favorite film. And so uh, we, we actually started doing commentaries uh, with the Kaiju cast, just stuff you can download and listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have, the, the, I have this rule. I'm like, if someone else has done a commentary that actually exists, like we're not touching it, like except for Monster Zero, because that's my favorite movie. Right. And oh, so, I understand yeah, that. Yeah. It's so fun. Such a, such a great movie. Mm. It is. It is. Now, I talked with Steve about your collective work on Megalon and yes. that commentary as well. And actually, I think when I was first reading about the kerfuffle, uh, I I specifically said, oh, I got to get Stuart on the podcast at some point because I want to hear his side of the whole thing. Because I know that it was uh, it, it was a burr in your skin, so to say. It, it was a mess, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the, the way I would put it is this. Um, basically, when a, it's kind of a long answer, but I'll I'll try to to be quick about it. Um, when, when a DVD label licenses a movie from a, a studio, we'll call them a studio, the, usually what happens is uh, everything is worked out in, in advance, number one. Number two, um, in most cases, the part of the licensing agreement includes uh, Things like uh, getting a, a clone of their digital master, of uh, the the licensor pr- providing stills and publicity material for use in the uh, DVD release or Blu-ray release, as it were, and um, and then once everything is worked out, the DVD label is usually left alone, and uh, that's how it normally works. But Toho is not a normal company. No, no, they're uh, not. They're famously litigious, and uh, number one, they want they they basically want to charge for everything separately, which is unusual. Uh, when I worked at MGM, for instance, if MGM shared rights on a movie uh, with, say, Studio uh, Canal or some some organization like that. Um, MGM would freely provide uh, a copy of their digital master at no cost, you know, or or at cost, you know, to to make a clone of the master. And uh, but Toho doesn't work that way. They have they charge separately for the licensing fee, and then separately for the master. And then if you want to use uh, photographs and have like a still gallery, let's say, they want to charge uh, separately for that. I mean even for each individual image. And uh, more so than that, uh, they also want to uh, very carefully control every aspect of the production. Uh, you may have heard the story that when um, Sony released uh, Godzilla 2000, it originally had the question mark at the end, yeah, sort of in the style of the blob and the dinosaurus and all those. And um, they as i understand it they signed off on that in the american script but then like two days before the movie was coming out they said oh we want you to take it out <laughs> wow. it's like we've already struck like 200 prints or whatever we can't do that 
So they're very controlling in that way. And when uh, Steve and Ed and I and others worked on the classic media titles, we had to, for example, uh, provide Toho with copies of our audio commentary scripts in advance yes. so that they could look yeah. them over and peruse them. And uh, I don't know specifically about I think that some people had to make major changes and some people had to make minor changes, uh, but they did actually say, you can't, we don't want you to say that, we don't want you to say, say this or that. I don't remember exactly, but I think that in my case, uh, they had some concerns about uh, my talking about uh, Nick Adams' uh, death and the, the stuff that followed his death and the mystery surrounding his death. And they initially asked me to take that out, I think. Mm. And I, maybe I was able to keep it in. I don't remember. But um, so when um, Media Blasters was preparing Destroy All Monsters and, and Megalon, I, I know that Steve talked to them and, and that they had asked Steve, uh, how should we handle this? And that Steve uh, cautioned them about Toho's reputation and said, look, you know, you can really run into some major problems if you don't play by their rules. So I strongly urge you to just, you know, uh, keep everything on the up and up and, and, um, make sure they sign off on everything. So beyond that, I really don't know for sure what happened because I wasn't there. And right, based, right. Media Blasters is based in New York and all that, but it certainly appears that they didn't go that route. And um, so that uh, created, I mean, Destroy All Monsters was released, but it obviously had a lot of stuff on there that probably had not been cleared by Toho. And um, It's too bad because it's a wonderful archive of all the extra features that have been added to that. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, other than the commentary, I mean, almost all that other material, the, the trailers and the stills and everything, almost all of that, I think, came from Ed Gajewski's collection. And yeah. he has a, a massive, uh, it's, not, it's not even really a collection, it's more of an archive of material that um, he meticulously uh, catalogs and, and uh, takes really good care of. And uh, it's just unfortunate that <laughs> apparently they just media blasters never asked Toho if that was okay. So uh, in, in the case of Megalon, again, I don't really know what happened. Obviously, they did press at least some DVDs uh, with all of the extra features on them because, right, as right. as we know, they got leaked out or or deliberately or or accidentally, we don't know, uh, and became available. And uh, it's possible, although, again, I don't know, that um, they may have pressed the Blu-ray as well. And so when Toho um, presumably started complaining about this, they were, um, they were in deep trouble. <laughs> right, yeah. But you haven't, <laughs> and, uh, you haven't heard anything it, about like an updated version or you know, what the status is. I'm assuming it's just radio silence as far as what you've heard. Well, I did hear I, I someone told me that Media Blasters announced on their Facebook page that they were going finally moving ahead on releasing a Blu-ray edition of Megalon. Uh whether that would be something with the extra features or bare bones, I don't know. Mm. 
And I don't think they've announced any kind of release date or anything either. So it's something that could theoretically still come out, um, but I haven't heard anything myself. uh, And I don't believe Steve has either. Well, I will admit that I have, as a resourceful fan, I have heard the commentary that you guys did for Megalon, and I found it quite amazing. Um, A lot of the listeners know that Megalon is my least favorite Godzilla film, but listening to uh, the the behind-the-scenes stuff that you guys were talking about was really quite eye-opening and and very interesting to, to learn about. Yeah, I mean that was kind of that, that was kind of the thing with that movie because Stephen Stephen I feel pretty much as you do it's it's a terrible movie, uh, but why it's a terrible movie I think is an interesting story and then also the story of how it came to America and ironically became one of the best reviewed, most widely seen Godzilla of films course, of all yeah. time uh, is also a great story and and Steve did most of the research for that but he just he uncovered a lot of fascinating material and you know i re- i remember seeing megalon when it aired on nbc hosted by john belushi of all people um you know it's just it's fascinating to think that this terrible godzilla movie is like the one that they that got a network airing so you know that's uh the the belushi aspect of that that's something that i have wanted to see like a you know it's like on YouTube or something like that for uh, years and years and years, and it has never surfaced. I've never seen. I think the only the, the closest I've come is someone had a photo of the Godzilla suit uh, that they used for that. Uh, yeah, know, but I can't remember what the context was. I think it was from another skit or something like that. But yeah, there were there were a couple things on that on that project that we were really hoping we could track down and we were really hoping we could somehow find that footage and <clears throat> find a way to license it and include it as an extra on the disc. But we just, we, we came up totally empty there. And, uh, I, as we mentioned on the disc, we also did this extensive search trying to locate the child actor from the right, film yeah. and he's pretty much disappeared as well. So, <laughs> one of two kid actors from the Godzilla <laughs> just yeah gone. now did you guys have uh like any uh, special interviews that you did specifically for, well aside from uh the guy from cinema shares right uh did you guys have any interviews that you actually went and did for the Megalon release well most of the interviews in that we did we did in fact do for that release I mean I um uh, did interviews with uh, uh, Katsuhiko Sasaki and the other actor whose name I can't recall, but who was a, um, I think a was he a drummer, possibly I don't remember, but he was a musician primarily rather than an actor, and a couple of other people, uh, but um, uh, we didn't include any audio or anything of those interviews. So oh, right, yeah, yeah. It's a it's a great commentary. I really wish uh, people could would be able to hear it. Hopefully, it will get a release at some point because it's it really shed a lot of insight into the making of that film. Um, oh well, thanks. I mean, I, you know, it was. I think uh, maybe Steve mentioned this to you as well that 
originally it was kind of like, well, this is a terrible movie. We really don't have to do anything sp- that special for it. And you know, my feeling was always, no, no, this is really, this is a really interesting story uh, because the movie came at this time when the Japanese film industry was just in in total chaos and collapsing and. Dae was going bankrupt and 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 Toho was sort of barely hanging on by its fingernails and and the the marketplace uh had sh- for the Godzilla films themselves had had shifted so dramatically away from the mainstream popular mainstream films that they had been in this in the early 60s and mid 60s to um being you know s- essentially parts of children's matinees um, and I think that's a, that's an interesting story. And I think also kind of, uh, in doing the research for Megalon, I began to realize that maybe a contributing factor to why they stopped making Godzilla films after 1975 had to do with the fact that Toho was, uh, had licensed, um, uh, films from Disney and was, release, re-releasing all the classic Disney films in the late seventies and early eighties and that that basically took the place of Godzilla, you know, on their release schedule. Like, I don't know how, how familiar you are with the, the current iterations of Godzilla, you know, the Millennium Series, mm. as, as we call it. But, I, you know, I was, as the movies, you know, you go from 1999 to 2000 and on, you get that same feeling that the movies aren't working for Japanese audiences, which is why... In 2001, they bring in the Hamtaro uh, cartoon that goes alongside of uh, right. of GMK, and then they do that again with uh, I think both both of the Mechagodzilla films as well. You know, I just get I really got the feeling that in Japan, people don't really care for Godzilla as much as they as they used to. No, not at all. I don't fact- understand what what I don't even know what could bring Godzilla back into a relevant sort of. Uh, consciousness for the for the Japanese people. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct because um, you know I've I saw a bunch of the go- later Godzilla movies in theaters in Tokyo or Kyoto, and invariably I'm like practically the only person in the theater. Right, <laughs> so right. That's that's number one, and then number two is that. Um, when I first started coming to Japan, it was in the wake of uh, Godzilla vs. Mothra from, whatever, 1992, mm-hmm. uh, which had been hugely successful. It was one of, I think, the top ten grossing domestic films of that year. And so there was a lot of Godzilla merchandise floating around in department stores and toy shops and things. And you could you could get all kinds of amazing stuff back then. Now you you pretty much can't find Godzilla merchandise anywhere unless you go to some kind of specialty, you know, hobby store or something. Right, right. In a regular department store, you can still find, you know, obviously you can get a lot of, uh, you know, Miyazaki stuff and Doraemon and Ampaman and 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 even some um ultra series stuff. But Godzilla, nope, it's it's gone. It's nowhere to be found anymore. So so if you had to make a prediction, because in 2004, right, they, they killed the series with Final Wars and, uh, and said, maybe we'll bring Godzilla back when someone can 
can do it right, essentially. Like, yeah. have you seen any sort of movement at all towards that? Not necessarily on Toho's end or other, uh, you know, people making kaiju films. Because I know there are a lot of independent kaiju films being created these days, or a handful of them being created these days. But, I mean, I don't... Like, Toho, I, I assume, is doing actually fairly well. I think I read somewhere that ever since they stopped doing Godzilla and started uh, focusing a little bit more on their uh, domestic release, uh, not domestic releases, but the domestic productions that, that uh, the company's actually doing very well and that the, their movies are doing well in the theaters. Uh, that I'm not so sure of. I mean, as a conglomerate, they might be doing well, but as a movie company, um, they're, they're almost non-existent really? these okay. days. Uh, I mean, when you think back to the 1960s when they were doing like almost 100 movies a year and the movies were all, the vast majority of them were in-house movies made by directors and staffs and and with casts that were all under contract. In recent years, Toho is doing, I, I don't know, I think they're releasing maybe around 10 or 15 films a year. And most of those films are actually co-productions with many other entities, you know, usually a, a television network like TBS and uh, maybe a newspaper or a cable company or an independent company. Uh, you look at recent Japanese movies and the, the, the names of all these different companies, there's, you know, it's not uncommon to see 12 or 15 different entities uh, all involved in the production. So for Toho to do its own in-house movie is pretty rare now really and um they have sadly sold off uh, much of the the studio property um i haven't been back to toho in a long time but uh when i first went there the the the, the famous toho pool was still there and most of the original stages and the commissary and all that were still there and my understanding is almost all of that stuff is gone yeah, and that they've I think sold that, off the property, yeah. and it's now like a Toho, uh, you know, hardware store and Toho pet supply <laughs> store and stuff in its place. Well, I know that uh, like when I go there in a couple of weeks, actually, the um, they provide a map online that I just downloaded, and it's definitely smaller than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, and of course, uh, Subaraya Productions, which was very close to Toho, that's that's now completely gone, and. Um, uh, Toshiro Mifune had a production company with, a, as I understand it, a small backlot and things, and that's that's been gone for many years. So, um, the the Japanese film industry has just completely changed, and there's there's not. Um, I, I think I think that there's a very good chance that eventually Toho is going to make a new Godzilla film, but the circumstances are so totally different. And they don't have people like uh, Honda and Kurosawa and all of the great talent that, that came out of that studio. They were able to do what they were able to do because they joined the company when they were young and then they apprenticed under other older Toho actors and directors and uh, learned their craft by just doing movie after movie after movie. And that kind of apprentice system that uh, allowed this golden age of Japanese cinema in the 50s and 60s just doesn't exist anymore, Right, sadly. So your prediction 
we would say that unless dire. Uh, yeah, dire, <laughs> dire straits. Uh unless something significant changes, we're not gonna see a rebirth of the Godzilla series anytime. anytime no, soon. I think the closest thing that we were able to get to that were the uh Kaneko Higuchi Gamera films. Oh yeah. I'm a huge fan of those. I actually used to run a website specifically dedicated to the Gamera trilogy. Yeah. I was I guess I was hoping that because um because of the Battleship Yamato movie and the Gachaman film, which I believe mm-hmm. just came out, that, you know, Japan was going to start, you know, bringing back some of the older properties and, and uh, franchises. I don't know. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, um, you know, they, they keep wanting to do that, and they keep trying to, to go back to that. I uh, Here in Kyoto, for example, Kyoto uh, was kind of the second the second Hollywood of Japan. I mean, it's where they Kyoto is where generally they filmed uh, each studio would film its uh, period films, the Jidaigeki and Chambara. So there was um, uh, Daiei Kyoto, uh, Shochiku Kyoto Studios, and so on. And Shochiku recently um, did a whole revamping of its Kyoto lot and uh, I was able to go to the opening of that and they did this marvelous job uh, sort of almost rebuilding the studio from the ground up but the idea I think behind it all was an investment hoping to attract foreign production in the same way that uh, Australia and New Zealand attracted you know Peter Jackson and Lucas and those kind of films and I think that that's kind of maybe where they're the, the business they're trying to to generate now right, right foreign investment and that kind of thing well i don't want to end this interview on a on a bummer of a note like that <laughs> so what uh what would you say do, are there any like cool stories that you might have that you could share from from all of your interviewing of the of the key players in in <sighs> these films boy i don't know i mean you know just everybody was just so fantastic and uh i I don't even know where to begin i mean i still uh am nostalgic thinking about uh for example uh meeting mie hama who beyond the the kaiju ega stuff of course i'm I'm a huge fan of the james bond movie you only live twice Mm -hmm. and so it was like oh my god i'm getting to meet kissy suzuki and (laughs) you know how great is that and uh, this was what now like 20 20 years ago now so she was at the time in her early 50s but she was she was still pretty darn hot even then and she showed up in the uh to the interview wearing this sort of tight leather mini skirt and I remember having a very difficult time concentrating on <laughs> you know looking at my questions <laughs> so there were things like that and um uh when I interviewed Jun Fukuda who was just uh this very self-effacing director who kept insisting all of my movies are terrible and and sort of almost getting into an argument with him, insisting that, no, no, Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster is a really extremely well-directed movie. You, you really ought to you know be proud of it. And going back and forth with him uh, on that. And, and eventually he kind of caving in a little bit and saying, well, okay, I guess it's okay, you know. <laughs> um yeah i uh i really enjoyed your story specifically about fukuda just uh since we're on the subject of, of uh june fukuda's works 
when you, I think it was in the Megalon commentary, you talked about that argument and and, uh, how he finally came around. I would love to read more people's interviews with him because I... I do enjoy his films, specifically his Mechagodzilla and um, and actually Son of Godzilla has really, really like grown on me in the in the past year. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I mean he had a, a whole different take on those movies, and I think his directorial style combined with Masaru Sato's music, which of course is totally different from Ifukube's, I, I think it gave the series uh, a, a little shot in the arm that it really needed at that point. And I think both of those are really terrific films. And I think Fukuda is, is criminally underrated. I, I Maybe I said this in the Megalon commentary as well, but you know, nowadays uh, people like Kinji Fukusaku and Seijun Suzuki are, are lionized for their crime films and, and uh, Yakuza films and so on. And I, I think Fukuda, who was a contemporary of those guys, was doing work on really the same level during the 60s with his crime films and spy films, which are as well-directed, if not better. And um, I hope eventually somebody... Uh, maybe Criterion's Eclipse label or, or somebody like that will pick up a couple of Fukuda's crime films and, and release those because I think I think people would be really surprised at how good those are. Well, uh, Stuart, I have taken up quite a bit of your time tonight, so thank you so much for talking with me about this. And uh, no, it's a pleasure. Thank thank you again for having me. Is there some place people could find you in in your current writing? Probably the best central source is through DVD Talk, and that kind of can lead you to other things. I have a, a blog that I don't update nearly as much as I should, and and it has links to, to books and DVDs and other things that I've worked on. So that's kind of a good central source. All right. Well, fantastic, man. I, I really appreciate you taking the time, and I will see you soon. Big thanks to Stuart for joining me through Skype, and uh, also big thanks to him for showing us around Kyoto. I really wish that I had spent more time there. Hopefully next time I go back to Japan, we can uh, have a little bit more time to hang out. We are going to play another request before we get into the news. This one is by Mochiro Oshima, and it is from Tokyo SOS. It is called The Enemy Below, and it is for James.
United Nations reporter Eric Carter with the news. The world is stunned to discover that prehistoric creatures exist in the 20th century. The armies have been alerted as we wait for more news from Japan. And once again, we have a ton of news to cover in this particular episode. Uh, starting with the stuff from 2014's brand new Godzilla film by Legendary Pictures. You know, we're just about a month away. Can you feel the excitement? Because I actually can. I There's like kind of like an electricity in the air. I'm really excited about finally being able to watch it. I've been holding off ever since the uh, the first official trailer was released. That's the last one I watched, and I haven't seen anything else since. I've been actually really good about like sort of visually scanning Facebook before I <laughs> click on anything, and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, did you know that next week, I'm guessing starting April 21st, you're going to be able to buy your advance tickets for Godzilla. Uh, I don't have a link in the show notes yet. I'm sure those will be uh, coming around on the 21st. But if you're the kind of person that likes to purchase your tickets in advance so you can see it right when it opens, there you go. The Warner Brothers online store, WBShop.com, has a ton of merchandise for the new Godzilla film. They have shirts, coffee cups, phone cases, action figures, messenger bags, mouse pads, and more. I'll have a link in the show notes to the uh, the Godzilla portion of their store. In addition to cool stuff you can buy, there are uh, some very cool things happening. In previous episodes, you heard me talk about the uh, sweepstakes to win a trip to the premiere in uh, Los Angeles. Well, the ultimate fan contest is now being run through Legendary's Godzilla page. Basically, it's a video contest where you uh, you put together a video basically showcasing why you're the ultimate Godzilla fan and why you should get a trip for two to London to see the UK premiere. And um, I'll just tell you right now, I'm entering that contest like no, like absolutely. I want an all expense paid trip to London to uh, potentially even meet Gareth Edwards. Anyway, I'll have a link in the show notes to that as well. And of course, there's another one called the Godzilla IMAX Fan Art Contest. They want you to create the most epic original poster capturing Godzilla's massive scale and scope. The winning artwork will be selected by director Gareth Edwards, and it will be displayed at the iconic Chinese theater IMAX in Hollywood. And of course, a link in the show notes will be available to anyone who wants to uh, enter that contest. I think you need to get on that. And I know if you want to get in on the Ultimate Fan Video Contest, you definitely have to submit that by, uh, I think, by this weekend. So hopefully you're not hearing this too late. Uh, there has been more extended video footage released. Uh, clearly, the marketing blitz is well underway. And I think this last one that I saw came out was the um, was like an extended TV spot. Again, I haven't actually watched it, so I'm not sure what it is. Uh, and if you're going to WonderCon, you remember last year for Pacific Rim, WonderCon had like a lot of footage for Pacific Rim, and they came out with a sort of trailer afterwards. That was my last trailer for Pacific Rim. But at WonderCon this weekend, Warner Brothers and Legendary are doing a presentation featuring Godzilla on Saturday at 11 a.m. They're going to have exclusive posters and an autograph session is also planned, so you could get these. And the posters do look really cool. You can get it signed by uh, by some of the people from the film. Moving on to other news, not legendary related. Um, I got some details on Mill Creek 
Entertainment's Gamera releases. And uh, just so you know, their press release says, for the first time, monster movie fans can watch eight Gamera movies across two collections in high definition on April 29th, 2014. Also available for the first time in one collection are 11 Gamera movies on DVD in the Gamera Legacy Collection. In anticipation of Godzilla in theaters this May, fans can whet their appetite with Mill Creek's release of Godzilla, the animated series, which contains all 40 an- all 40 episodes together for the first time, including two unaired episodes. Mill Creek continues to answer the call for classic entertainment at must-have prices of 19.98 for the Blu-rays and 14.98 for the DVDs. I'll have a link in the show notes to several links on Mill Creek's website and uh, their trailers that they've done for the Gamera and the Godzilla series, which are on YouTube. X Plus Japan has announced their lineup. I want to say for this next month, but these release dates are a little wonky, so make sure you follow the link in the show notes to Sci-Fi Japan's article about these releases. Uh, The ones that are important to me, and as Godzilla fans, these are the ones that are probably important to you, there's some Ultraman characters that I'm not really as familiar with, so check the link in the show notes to to see what they're releasing. They're releasing a Resin Real Master Collection Godzilla 1989. That's on the 30-centimeter scale. They're releasing a 25-centimeter Gamera from 1996's Gamera 2 Advent of Legion. I'm really excited about that because I, I don't like to collect the 30-centimeter figures. They're too big, in a sense, and I don't want to run out of space, so I have mostly 25-centimeter figures and this is the first of the Heisei Gamera's that they've released that they will be releasing in the uh, 25 centimeter scale. Also, their 30 centimeter Rick Boy exclusive Dodongo was pushed back to uh, this next couple of months, I believe. So if you are interested in that, you still have time to get in on uh, getting your Dodongo figure. They have also announced, although I guess technically it's not announcing it's just a, a hint, but the, it's an obvious hint. Their next figure in the gigantic line is indeed the burning Godzilla figure. It's going to be massive. If you thought that the um, the GMK figure was big, this is way bigger because the GMK figure was hunched over and the burning Godzilla is like sort of sort of standing up straight. So it looks amazing and I am absolutely not missing out on this one. Speaking of X+, Diamond has announced their brand new wave, which is wave five, of their figures. Uh, These are the ones that they're releasing through their own Diamond distribution and will be available in your local comic book and pop culture shops. They will be releasing the 1962 Godzilla, the 1968 Godzilla, and Hedra, all between August and November of this year. I do not have a large-scale Hedra figure, so I'm absolutely going to be getting that one. And I probably will get the 68, because it's a really good sculpt. Speaking of Diamond, Diamond Select Toys King Ghidra Vinyl Bank should be available for pre-order. The suggested retail price for that guy is $22.99, and its estimated availability will be August 1st of this year. Sci-Fi Japan has even more contests out there for you Godzilla fans. Uh, You can win the Kraken Sector 23 Godzilla Blu-rays that are coming out. I'll have a link in the show notes to that, as well as their contest to win Mill Creek Entertainment's Godzilla the Series DVD set. Both of those happening on SciFiJapan.com. 
Speaking of contests, I have a brand new contest for the KaijuCast. We haven't done one outside of the emergency broadcast in ages, so I figured now is as good a time as any. I have in my hand one copy of August Ragoni's second edition book, Eiji Tsuburaya, Master of Monsters. One copy, so there can be only one winner. What you need to do, I'm going to make this super easy for you. You don't even have to answer a trivia question or anything. All you have to do is send an email to contest at kaijucast.com with the subject of Master of Monsters Contest. Include your name, email address, and physical mailing address. And you have to submit that before April 27th. So... This is like a bonus for those who listen to the episodes as soon as they come out. So send that information in before April 27th for your chance to win the only copy of the second edition Eiji Tsuburaya Master of Monsters that I have in my possession. <laughs> uh, I'll just go over those details again. Please send your email to contest at kaijucast.com with the subject line of Master of Monsters contest and make sure to include your name, email address, and physical mailing address for your chance to win. And I'm going to try and get this sent out before it actually comes out on May 6th. As long as you're within the continental United States, you should, I think, get it before it comes out. Anyway, I'm rambling. Good luck with the contest, listeners. Feels good to have another contest. Man, Really should be doing those more often. We're going to go ahead and move on to some awesome events that are happening. There's going to be a really cool event happening on May 3rd in Los Angeles. And uh, I'm, you know, not going to be able to explain it nearly as well as this guy. Mark Haramio, welcome to the Kaiju Cast. Well, thanks for having me, Kyle. So tell us a little bit about what's going on down in, uh, in the Los Angeles area. Uh, on May 3rd in Little Tokyo... Uh, we're having a special uh, event that's part of uh, a multicultural event that's happening in Little Tokyo. They're celebrating both Cinco de Mayo and a Japanese Boys Festival holiday. And it's happening um, in the Little Tokyo Plaza. Uh, we're having uh, two screenings of Godzilla vs. Biolante. Very cool. Yes, and a special guest is um, uh, Mr. Koichi Kawakita, who was the special effects director of that film. And uh, of the entire Heisei era of the Godzilla series, too. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I'm really psyched that he's going to G-Fest this year because I'm very much looking forward to talking with him. Um, so what else is happening aside from the screenings? Because you guys are doing some demonstrations. Yes. Uh, in, in addition to Mr. Kawakita, um, we're also... Uh, uh, having an another guest from Japan, that would be Mr. Uh, Iwasaki. Uh, he owns uh, Marbling Fine Arts. Now, for listeners out there who might not be familiar with Marbling Fine Arts, can you can you explain who those guys are? Yes, uh, Mr. Norihiki Iwasaki. He's a producer, and he owns a Marbling Fine Arts, which is a, a special effects company. They prim primarily created the miniatures for a lot of the Godzilla and Gamera films and a lot of the uh, Ultraman series. Right so on. what what they're going to do is they're going to have a a small uh, diorama, uh, number, uh, not that small from what I from what I hear. It's going to be basically a a set a, a little city miniature cityscape, and Mr. Iwasaki and Mr. Kawakita are going to 
demonstrate uh, camera techniques uh, when it comes to filming tokusatsu scenes. That is super awesome, man. That is that alone makes me wish I was coming down there for this. Yeah, it's definitely a rare treat, especially here in the U.S., to see something like this. Let me also add that there's going to be two screenings of Godzilla vs. Biollante. One, the 3 p.m. screening, will be the English dubbed version. Uh, that was primarily because there's going to be a lot of families and children in the plaza, uh, which is adjacent to the Aratani Theater in Little Tokyo. So they're hoping to have a lot of younger viewers come to see the English dubbed version. At 6 p.m., they're going to have the original Japanese version with English subtitles. So you have your choice of the way you want to see it. Or you, you can go to both. I know a lot of people who have said they're going to buy tickets for both showings. That's awesome. They should, because Biollante is one of the, I think it's one of the groundbreaking Godzilla films, especially for its, uh, it, in a sense, breaking ground here in the U.S., because I know that's one of the movies that I saw in the video store. That was like, whoa, they're still making Godzilla films? Yes, I remember when I first saw, learned of the existence of that film, I saw a Japanese movie program at Hollywood Book and Poster back in 1989, and I was shocked because I had no idea that they had, you know, resumed the series. So I'll always remember that image of that, of that movie poster. Yeah, that is super cool. So Kawakita is going to be there and, uh, and the guys from Marbling Fine Arts. That's cool, man. What else is happening? Because it's not just that. That's, yes, not just that. That's not all. <laughs> yeah, because uh, both both screenings of uh, Biolante will uh, have the special effects demonstration. And in addition to the movie screenings, at 9 p.m. down the street at Anime Jungle, uh, Mr. Kawakita and Mr. Iwasaki will also be uh, also have, have their demonstration of uh, special effects at the store. And uh, it'll be a Q&A with them. And also, this is, uh, this is something that I demanded happen too when I found out Mr. Kawakita was going to attend. I demanded that, and we actually got permission to show the short film Nendo no Kamisama, or The God of Clay. That's awesome. I've been wanting to track that down for a long time, and you, sir, are the kind of guy to do that. <laughs> yes, that's, um, yeah, that's what I do. And, uh, um, I'm going to mention a bit more about that in a minute, but yes, The God of Clay, has previously only been screened one time in public. That's it. And unfortunately, I missed that screening a few years ago. So once I found out Mr. Kawakita is going to attend, and also Mr. Iwasaki, it's perfect because they both worked on this film. Uh, the God of Clay is a short 20-minute film based on a popular Japanese children's book about a young boy who makes a, a little clay model because um, I believe his parents died in the war. He made this little figure and... and uh, said, no, you are my protector God, and you will help us prevent wars from happening and plaguing humanity. And as the years go by, this young boy grows into a man who becomes president of a, of a munitions company. And what happens is the little clay figure, long forgotten, comes to life and grows gigantic and tracks down his creator to remind him of the promise that he made when he was a young boy. Awesome. That is cool. I hope it goes over really well, man, because that is something. I mean, I remember seeing that on Sci-Fi Japan. I think I even reported, quote unquote, on it uh, on the Kaiju cast when when I found out about it. I was like, oh, my gosh, what's what is this about a new short film? Uh, which yes, it's, it's very exciting that this is going to be screened. 
and this will be my first time seeing it. So I'm, I'm very grateful for this. That's super cool, man. Very cool. And you, you tend to do that. You track down the, uh, the short films and the independent kaiju films. I really, as a, as a fan of the genre, I really appreciate not only those being made outside of the studio systems, but also the fact that you're, you're trying to get all that information for the fans. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you, appreciate what I'm doing. Sometimes I, I think I'm the only one who cares about this stuff. But yeah, for those who don't know, uh, I was uh, instrumental in tracking down the independent film uh, Wolfman vs. Godzilla. And I did bring Mr. Shizuo Nakajima, the director of that film, last year to G-Fest, where, it was, where 25 minutes of footage was screened for an overflow audience, and people really gave him a great reception. Yeah, that was that was super awesome. Really cool. And uh, this year, um, at the Anime Jungle event, in addition to Mr. Kawakita, Mr. Yosaki, I'm going to be giving a short lecture and a presentation on a documentary project that is being worked on by myself and by David Hall. This is going to be the first time that it's going to be announced, and I'm going to show footage of other independent productions that I've tracked down. There have been others. The most infamous one is, of course, besides Wolfman Godzilla. Wolfman vs. Godzilla is Gamera 4 by Shinpei Hayashiya. Yeah, dude. The uh, Shrine of Gamera curator is going to be very excited to see that. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, we're going to talk about that. And in addition to that, uh, Mr. Hayashiya, uh, he's known for being a master of Rakugo, which is a Japanese traditional form of comedic storytelling. Uh, but he's all known as being a big fan of Kaiju Ega and Tokusatsu. And he did have a couple of films, uh, Rego versus Yamato and, uh, Deep Sea Monster Raiga. Mm-hmm. They did, uh, come out in Japanese theaters, uh, a few years back. But he also did make, in addition to Gamera 4, he also made a film called Godzilla versus Sidora. Which, uh, was, was actually a very long undertaking. He actually started work on this in the late seventies and continued intermittent work on it up until the early two thousands. And quite a bit of footage was filmed. We'll be screening a, a few clips of that as well. That's awesome. Yeah. I came across his website at some point when I was doing the Gamera, uh, the Shrine of Gamera and I, I know that I told you about this, but I don't think the listeners know. I actually emailed him and was like, please, I'm sorry for my broken Japanese translation here, but please, is there any way I can get a hold of Gamera 4? Because I really wanted to see it. And he was, he, he responded. He was like, I'm sorry, I can't. But it was really cool to get a response from him. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Katakawa Pictures, who owns the rights to Gamera because they bought out Daiei, they were very gracious enough to allow Mr. Hayashiya to have a, a handful of public screenings of it in Japan uh, more than 10 years ago when the film uh, was completed. And um, so those lucky people actually got to see the film in person. And w- one of the fans was Shusuke Kaneko, the director of the 90s Gamera trilogy. He actually attended a few of the screenings and he was a very big fan of the films. And he told the collected audiences, you know, if I had made a fourth Gamera film, this is what it would have been like because Gamera four 
picks up at the exact moment where Gamma 3 leads off. That's really cool. Man, I can't wait to see what you're going to present, seriously. Yeah, and in addition to these, there's a few other filmmakers we've tracked down in Japan and uh, a few other clips that are going to be screened. And, and I'm going to... Uh, Kaiju Cast is going to get the scoop here because I'm going to announce it uh, to you guys first. Some of those other films... For example, did you know that there was a sequel to Atragon? I did not know that. Zoku Kaite Gunkan. It was made in the late 70s by Kato Productions, and it is a feature-length movie. It, it, take, it uh, picks up 20 years after the events of the first Atragon. Really? Yes. Okay. And so this is another independent production, right? Another independent production by Kato Productions from Japan. Kato Productions was very prolific, and in, in, that wasn't the only movie they made. They also made Matango 2, Resurrection of Daimajin. What? And, and Daikaiju Zeron, which is a Rodan type of flying monster, cool. in addition to a few others. That sounds rad. And if you attend the event at Anime Jungle, you will get to see clips of all of those movies. Well, there you go, folks. More reasons to go to check out the thing, uh, the three different events in Los Angeles, May 3rd, man. That's really yeah. cool. Yes, uh, Godzilla vs. Bailanti showings at 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. at the Aratani Theater in Little Tokyo. And at 9 p.m. will be the event at Anime Jungle. And that event is absolutely free for anybody who wants to come down. And there will be event-exclusive merchandise at, at the Anime Jungle event. Uh, Anime Jungle is uh, making an ex- event-exclusive poster, which will be available for Mr. Kawakita to sign. And also, in addition to that, uh, Mr. Kawakita uh, will bring exclusive merchandise that his company, Dream Planet Japan, has manufactured and has never been for sale here in the U.S. Oh, I'm very familiar with some of that stuff. That's really awesome. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, so it's a, it'll be a great time. Right on. Well, I will have a link in the show notes to where you can purchase tickets for the screenings and information about the Anime Jungle event as well. Yes. Mark, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Kyle, for having me, and I hope to see you all over there. But that's not all. There are several other events happening. Starting uh, on our end, May 2nd through the 5th, Godzilla, the original 54, is screening here in Portland, Oregon, at the Hollywood Theater. And August Rigoni is going to be here to help out with the screening because he and I are going to do sort of like a co-presentation at the beginning of those uh, several screenings. I'll have all the details uh, linked to on the KaijuCast Facebook page. And he's also going to be signing his book, Age of Tsuburaya, Master of Monsters. And of course, as you know, May 16th is the official opening day, although it might be the 15th now, I'm not exactly sure, of the brand new Legendary Pictures Godzilla film. I'm sure you're all going to go and check it out. Uh, I look forward to your uh, eventual Daikaiju discussion homework, which we will talk about at a later time. But if you're in the Portland area, there's an awesome theater in town called the Roseway Theater, and they have like top-of-the-line equipment. Basically, the Roseway is hosting a loud screening of Godzilla. That will be May 16th at 11 p.m. And I believe I'm going to be getting up and talking a little bit about something Godzilla-related. Hopefully, I'll have some stuff to give away. Uh, Don't count on that. Just go, because if you really, really want to see a Godzilla film like I do, you want your chest to shake. You want, you know, you want to feel 
Godzilla's footsteps as he crashes down on San Francisco. Ugh, I can't wait. Anyway, uh, that is happening May 16th at 11 p.m. at the Roseway Theater on Sandy Boulevard. May 17th and 18th, Big Wow Comics Fest is happening in San Jose, California, and they are bringing to the famous Monsters of Filmland Pavilion, which is a special celebration that you'll hear about in the episode with August. They're bringing Japanese actors Ken Pachiro Satsuma, who played Godzilla from 1984 to 1995, and also some other monsters. They're bringing Bin Furuya, who played Ultraman, in the original 1966 series, and then played Amagi in the uh, Ultra Garrison of Ultra 7. And they're also going to have Ban Daisuke, who is the actor who played Kikaida. And that is happening at the Big Wow Comics Fest. Make sure you check it out if you're in the area, or if you're like me and you just really want to go check it out, fly down. That is going to do it for the news section of this episode. We're going to move on to some housekeeping items. Just a reminder about your Daikaiju discussion homework. That needs to be turned in by Friday, April 25th to be included in the Daikaiju discussion episode. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on this 1967 film from Nikatsu. Also, welcome to a brand new Kaiju Corps member, Captain David Goodman. Welcome aboard, sir. Your contribution is extremely important and i really do appreciate you and all of the kaiju core members for supporting this show if you want to become a member of the kaiju core we have three levels captain colonel and corporal those are not in any particular order and those actually those are in alphabetical order now that i think about it uh those uh, all are all detailed at kaijucast.com slash support uh, time to kill the show, you guys, for this particular episode at least. If you found the KaijuCast through iTunes or some other podcast directory, please point your web browser to KaijuCast.com so you can see all that we are about, the full episode list, the full list of Daikaiju discussions, uh, every single article we've done, reviews are on there, but not too many. Also, all the links to our friends' websites and our social media, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, YouTube, etc., it's all linked from the right-hand side of the KaijuCast website. So that's going to do it for this episode of the KaijuCast. We're going to close things out by saying congratulations to John DeSantis and Chris Olio for meeting their fundraising efforts and actually going beyond the $25,000 that they were trying to raise, that they did raise, to put on the Akira Ifukube concert at G-Fest and in honor of that, we are going to play Mechagodzilla's Counterattack from Akira Ifukube. And we will see you for the next episode, Jamata. Jamata.